I was looking through the card rack at the store for a birthday card when I saw a section of cards with images of gingerbread men on the front of the cards. I opened one to read, The Perfect Man. He's quiet, he's sweet, and if he gives you any grief, you can bite his head off. Former President Donald Trump made famous his line that if someone hits you, you hit them back twice as hard. Well, those ideas are not exactly the forgiving spirit that Jesus spoke about in Matthew six fourteen and 15, as he closed his instructions to us on how to pray. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. These are Jesus' closing instructions regarding the true spirit of prayer. Forgiveness is foundational to prayer. And forgiveness occurs in two directions with two aspects to each direction. There is vertical and horizontal forgiveness. Those are the two directions and in each direction, we have judicial and relational forgiveness. Those are the two aspects of forgiveness. Jesus ties our forgiveness of others, that is horizontal forgiveness, to his forgiveness of us, that is vertical forgiveness. But what aspect of forgiveness is Jesus talking about here? In what way can his forgiveness of us be dependent on our forgiveness of others? Let's begin with our relationship with God, because this vertical relationship is foundational to our horizontal relationships with others. If you are listening to this message, and you have never asked Jesus to forgive your sins, then this is what you must do right now. This is first. You can never understand forgiveness until you first experience His forgiveness of you. So tell God that you know you are a sinner and that you have wronged Him many, many times. You know that Christ died to pay the penalty for your sin, and you want to accept Christ's payment on your behalf and be released from your debt to God. And he will release you from the penalty of your sin right now. You will be free. Your sin will be forgiven. But what happens if you sin tomorrow? And you will sin, my friends, just like I will. Are you forgiven for the sins which you will commit tomorrow? The answer is yes. The author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 10.14, For by one offering he, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ's one payment on the cross is sufficient to forgive all the sins you will ever commit. He applies that payment to your account by his amazing grace. He's your great high priest in heaven. He intercedes for you every time you sin. Every time you sin, Christ stands up for you in heaven and says, 
forgiven. Hebrews 7, 24 to 25 says, Jesus continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The grace of Jesus saves you forever. This is judicial forgiveness. You say, Dave, don't I have to confess my sins each time to be forgiven? No. Confession is not sacramental or meritorious as if you earn your forgiveness by your confession. You say, well, what if I don't forgive my spouse? Does Jesus take away my forgiveness? No. Both of these questions deal with relational forgiveness, not judicial forgiveness. You are forgiven forever judicially. I have received great help in sorting out the theology of forgiveness from Wendell Miller's book, Forgiveness, the Power and the Puzzles. I think the book is out of print now, but my book, entitled The Faces of Forgiveness, is available and reflects his explanations. I knew Wendell in Indiana many years ago where he was a biblical counselor, and I went to seminary with his daughter. Wendell points out that there are two different kinds of forgiveness in the Bible, and there is a profound difference between judicial forgiveness, which is unconditional, and relational forgiveness, which is conditional. I don't have to do anything to keep God's judicial forgiveness, but I do have to do something to keep God's relational forgiveness. Listen to the words of 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation is a theological term that simply means that Christ satisfied the requirements of God for us, so we don't have to pay for our sins. Once we are forgiven by God, then Christ is our advocate with the Father. Jesus is our defense attorney, because the price has already been paid for every sin I ever commit. I do not have to confess those sins to be forgiven judicially, because if that were the case, my salvation would depend on my works, not his work. So this is judicial forgiveness. What about 1 John 1, 9, you ask? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, my friends, this is relational forgiveness, and it is very conditional. My relationship with God is very dependent on my confession of sin and keeping the channel of communication open with God. When I sin, the relationship is hindered by my sin, so I must confess my sin to him to enjoy that open relationship with God once again. But I'm not condemned judicially for my sin. Relational forgiveness is conditional on ongoing confession. 
Now, let's turn our attention to horizontal forgiveness, because the same two kinds of forgiveness take place horizontally. There is judicial and relational forgiveness with others. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 11:25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. The word used here to forgive is the same word used in Matthew. It means to release or to free yourself from something. Literally, you throw it all away. Now, I want you to look closely at the text, because it does not tell you to throw away the person, but it rather the offense. If you have anything against someone, you throw it away. You are to release the matter to God in prayer. It has nothing to do with the person who offended you, except as it keeps your fist out of his face. You are releasing the offense to God and acknowledging that God has the responsibility to deal with the person justly. So you release your anger, you release your pain, your resentment to God in prayer. This is one-way forgiveness, or what we can call judicial forgiveness. I release your offense to God for my benefit. It does nothing for you, but it releases me from my hurt, my pain, my anger. I am now free from you and can go on with my life without bitterness or resentment. But forgiveness does not end there. There is two-way forgiveness in Scripture. This is relational forgiveness. Turn to Luke seventeen three and 4. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Here, Jesus tells us to forgive the person, not the sin. The pronouns are personal pronouns. I have an obligation to rebuke sin when I see it. If the person repents, then and then only do I forgive that person. Relational forgiveness is very conditional. I cannot forgive a person relationally who does not express the fruits of repentance in his life. I can only release that person to God in judicial forgiveness. But if the person repents, then I must release his guilt and his pain so that he is free to get on with his life or her life. If I do not, then I hold him or her hostage to my unforgiving spirit. Listen very carefully. Judicial forgiveness frees me. Relational forgiveness frees you. Now, with all that in mind, turn back to Matthew six fourteen and 15, because this is all a long introduction to the text I want to unpack in the next few minutes. Matthew six fourteen and 15. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions.
God designed the body of Christ, the church, so that we cannot be right with him while holding grudges against each other. Our relationship with God is influenced by our relationship with each other. Then, Jesus ties that forgiveness to prayer, because prayer is relational language, it's relational talk. We stand forgiven forever in the courtroom of God. That's judicial forgiveness. But our relationship with God is hindered, blocked, by an unforgiving spirit toward another brother or sister in Christ. Our unforgiving spirit acts like a wet blanket on our prayer life. But forgiveness frees the soul for prayer. That's the principle here. Forgiveness frees the soul for prayer. There are two sides to the forgiveness coin in these two verses. If I do, he does, verse 14. If I don't, he won't, verse 15. If I do, he does. If I don't, he won't. A man once made a comment to John Wesley, I never forgive. To which Wesley wisely replied, Then, sir, I hope you never sin. Let's unpack the first side of the forgiveness coin in verse 14. If I do, he does. Jesus says, If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Now, which kind of forgiveness is Jesus talking about in verse 14? What is being forgiven? The sins are being forgiven. A very common meaning of the Greek word to forgive was to let go of the offense. To forgive an offense, a transgression, was to release it, to let it go, and no longer hold on to the offense. So we could translate the verse, if you release to others their transgressions. We are talking then about judicial forgiveness here. There's no discussion of rebuke and no condition of repentance. We release it in prayer, the offense against us we release, we let it go, we no longer hold it against the person. There is a Greek inscription from 6 BC which uses this very Greek word we translate forgive in a phrase which reads, Let the pot drop. Let the pot drop. So forgiveness means to let the pot drop. What do I do when there is no repentance by the person who wronged me? Let the pot drop. But you must not restore the the person relationally until there is repentance. Granting relational forgiveness, where there is clear evidence that the person has not repented or taken responsibility for his or her actions, is nothing more than cheap grace and an offense to God. Instead, you grant judicial forgiveness and release that person to God while praying that the person repents. You let the pot drop without restoring the relationship. Then you are free to enjoy an open and unhindered, unblocked relationship with the Lord. Ginger Green has struggled with forgiveness since 1991. She has struggled in ways few of us will ever experience. 
Her story and the story of her daughter, Margot, were the subject of the CBS special entitled In the Killing Fields of America. Ginger last saw her daughter alive on Mother's Day in 1991. At 8.45 Monday morning, Margot's abusive husband, Eric, broadsided her car and shot her seven times in front of a crowd of downtown commuters. He then turned the gun on himself and committed suicide. They buried Margot on Thursday, just two days before she was to graduate from college at the age of 22. Several days after the funeral, Ginger and her husband were standing in the doorway of their son Chase's bedroom. Chase was pounding the mattress with his fist and shouting, I don't see how I'm ever going to forgive God for letting Eric kill Margot or Eric for doing it. I don't know what I'm going to do. Margot heard herself respond to her 23-year-old son as if another voice was speaking. I think God knows our hearts and our desire to forgive even if we aren't ready. As long as we move in the direction of forgiveness, he will bless our efforts. Her thoughts, she said, moved involuntarily to Matthew six fourteen and 15 and God's call to forgive. Yet Ginger says that sometimes, even now, years later, she is haunted by the question of forgiveness. How can she forgive? and really mean it. Why does she struggle so with her emotions? She said it's like walking in sand some days as she struggles to forgive all over again and again and again. Here are her words, not mine. So, she says, I release my emotions to God in prayer. I open my fractured heart and form what he fearfully and wonderfully made into cries for help. I make my dust submit to divine justice. When I do this, when I do this, I hear no rebuke from God, no icy judgment that freezes me on my knees. Instead, I feel his peace and comfort stretch down from heaven and scoop me up when the sand is too deep. Like David, I am wrapped in the arms of my heavenly Father, strengthened for the next step in trying to forgive. My friends, this is the essence of judicial forgiveness. God honors your one-way forgiveness, your judicial forgiveness of another. God honors your one-way forgiveness with his two-way forgiveness. Isn't that beautiful? This is what we do when there is no repentance. We release it all to God, let him take care of the matter in his time. Judicial forgiveness frees our souls for prayer, open communication with God, for God restores our relationship with him. God's ongoing grace will help you through, my friends. You must depend on his grace each and every time the emotions rise up to destroy you. Turn it all over to him once again, and again, and again, and choose to act in accordance 
with forgiveness. Force yourself by his grace, because you can't do it yourself, to take actions that demonstrate the spirit of forgiveness toward the other person. What do we do if there is repentance? Now we must forgive relationally. We must restore the relationship. Marriages, for example, are sustained by constant forgiveness. Florence Litauer, in her book entitled After Every Wedding Comes a Marriage, writes, I used to gather up my husband Fred's faults with the fervor of a child picking berries. I had a whole shelf of overflowing baskets before the concept of forgiveness fell heavily upon me. To be spiritual, I plucked out a few of Fred's faults and forgave them. But I didn't want to clear the whole shelf. Where would I go for future reference material? Men, suppose you arrive home after a long day at work, cranky and tired. Everything has gone wrong. Your wife also had a bad day. Maybe she was stressed out at the office, or maybe the kids are miserable. The two of you arrive at the combustion point at the same time. You forgot to get milk on the way home. She erupts, and you snap back at her with your favorite insults. What should you do? Well, of course, the first thing you should do is go get the milk. Then on your way, since you will be thinking angry thoughts anyway, turn those angry thoughts into prayer. Ask God to help you, and then release those angry, hurtful words your wife said to God. Let go of them and give them to God. Let the pot drop. Stop carrying the anger. Do this all in prayer. By the time you arrive back home, you will be in a much better frame of mind. Now, you can say you were sorry for what you said, and the process of healing can commence. The healing process starts with forgiveness. The repentant sinner must be restored relationally, not just by words, but by actions. My friends, if you cannot speak to that person, if you cannot pray with and for that person, if you cannot worship in church with that person, then you have not forgiven that person. It really is that simple. And in that case, the second principle in verse 15 kicks into gear. Jesus teaches us that if I do, he does, and if I don't, he won't. Verse 15. Jesus went on to warn us, But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. God will not restore us relationally with him until we forgive others who have wronged us. There will always be a barrier between us and God, as long as we harbor a bitter spirit towards someone else. Until we let go and release the offense, we will never know real communion with God. Now, we will still be forgiven judicially, meaning that we still go to heaven. God does not hold our sins against us once he has forgiven those sins, and we will spend eternity with him. However, 
we will never know the freedom and the joy of an open and intimate relationship with God as long as we hold on to those grudges we have with other people. God will seem distant because of our bitterness and our resentment and our grudges. Our prayers are hindered by an unforgiving spirit. Let me say that again. Our prayers are hindered by an unforgiving spirit toward other people. We will never have effective prayer lives while holding grudges. So let them go. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 66:18, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That's powerful. The Lord will not hear. In David's great confession of his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, David pleaded with God for his forgiveness and that God would restore his relationship by God's grace. He said in Psalm 51, 10 through 12, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a, a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. The sin of unforgiveness leads God to cast us away from his presence. Now, this is relational language, not judicial language. We lose the joy of our salvation with the Lord by an unforgiving spirit toward others. A story is told about a small-town merchant many years ago who had twin boys who were inseparable. They were so close that they even dressed alike. Many people said that their closeness was the reason that neither boy ever married. When the father died, the brothers took over the business together. One day, one of the brothers was busy and left a dollar bill on top of the cash register while he went up front to to help a customer. Remembering the dollar bill, he later returned to deposit it in the cash register, only to find that the dollar bill was gone. He asked his brother if he had seen it, and his brother said no. An hour later, he asked again and again, because he was sure his brother had pocketed the bill. His brother became angry and defensive at the questioning over a dollar bill. The conflict over that dollar bill grew and grew, with charges and countercharges hurled at each other, until finally they dissolved the business partnership. They built a wall down the middle of the store, and for twenty years the brothers lived in competition with each other. One day, a car with an out-of-state license plate pulled up in front of the stores. A well-dressed man got out and entered the one store. He asked how long the owner had been there, and when he found out that he had been the owner for over 20 years, he said, Well, then you are the one with whom I must settle an old score. The man went on to tell how, 20 years earlier, he had been out of work and drifting. He happened to get off a boxcar on the train when it stopped in town, and walking down the alley behind the store, he saw the dollar bill lying on top of the cash register. 
Everyone else was in the front of the store, so he slipped in, took the dollar bill. His conscience had bothered him all these years, and he knew that he would never be at peace until he replaced the money and paid for the damages. When the stranger had finished, the first brother was now sobbing as he realized how wrong he had been. Taking the stranger by the arm, he walked to the store next door and asked him to tell his story to his brother. This time the brothers wept side by side for the twenty years of bitterness that they had allowed to destroy their relationship. Now there are so many lessons in that parable of unforgiveness. Think how much damage a simple sin can cause in the lives of others if you do not repent quickly. But then think how much damage an unforgiving spirit can do to our relationships in life. Many, many a family has been torn apart by a bitter, unforgiving spirit. An unforgiving spirit is the cancer that eats away our marriages, our families, our churches, and even our countries. If we cannot let the pot drop, we will die slowly, crushed by its weight. My friends, forgiveness is foundational to all of our relationships. Young people, forgive your parents for their failures. Parents, forgive your children for the wrongs they have done to you. Wives, forgive your husbands. Husbands, forgive your wives. You can do so at the very least judicially and release the past that haunts your present and steals your future. The ending to Jesus' teaching on prayer raises a scary thought. To think that our forgiveness or lack of forgiveness toward others opens or closes our intimacy with God is a powerful warning for all of us. My friends, does God seem distant? Do you feel like God doesn't hear your prayers anymore? Look carefully at your relationships with others in your family, your church, or your community. Is there an unforgiving spirit in you? Are you holding grudges against someone else? As we are forgiven by the Lord, so we should forgive others. As we forgive others, our hearts open to enjoy His forgiveness of us. God becomes close again, and we sense His presence as we pray. The only way that you can forgive, either judicially or relationally, is by depending on His grace to help you, because you can't do it on your own. So I want you to do three things right now as you listen to this message. 1. Identify anyone against whom you hold a grudge. That's the first step. Identify anyone against whom you hold a grudge. 2. Ask God to help you forgive either judicially or relationally depending upon that person's response. Ask for God's help to forgive. And three, 
Release the bitterness and the anger to God right now and be free, be free and forgiven.